The Old Testament reading is Jeremiah 29, 4-14, and 38-11. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and I will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you've uh, been here with us consistently, you may be getting a little bit tired of that passage, and I promise you that it'll be the last time that you will hear it for a while. Uh, We've spent probably about six weeks in Jeremiah 29, and last week we started um, reflecting on what do his words to Israel in exile have to tell us about the way that we engage in the political sphere. And as you can imagine, there is far more to say than what I could say last week or even this week. Um, But this is going to be God and politics part two or part deux, and then we'll move on out of Jeremiah 29. I hope that makes you happy. Uh, If you're new, we do try to stay relatively close to the text, and I want to tell you what I believe uh, the text says rather than just tell you what I want to tell you on a given week. Um, But we've been deeply embedded in this text long enough to where we've kind of covered some of the main 
points and exegetical things. And so we're going to use it sort of just as a reference point and skim. And I don't want you, if you're new or listening online, to think that we are treating this text as sort of a wax nose to what we want to say or what I want to say. Um, But I hope that we can pull out of Jeremiah's words some threads, some themes that I think will give us some guidance in terms of how do we live politically as a church and as individuals. So let me um, pray for us as we get started. Father, would you guide us? Uh, Politics is something that is not brought up in um, common conversation because it's so divisive. It's hard to talk about in a polite way. And we all have blinders. We all have ways of thinking. We all have presuppositions that many of us guard with our lives. And so as we perhaps lean on some of those things, challenge some of those presuppositions and presumptions, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, and I pray that you would let us be responsive insofar as it reflects uh, your truth and how you want us to live. Give us open minds and open hearts, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Eric uh, Weiner is a columnist for New York Times, and he wrote in the Sunday Review a number of years ago about the sad state of the conversation about religion in the United States. And he writes as a so-called nun, that is someone who checks the nun box for religious affiliation, but he doesn't dismiss religion. He's almost wishing that he could believe, he could find a faith that is worth following. But he says there's very little, quote-unquote, good religion out there. God is not a lot of fun these days. All we see is an angry God, constantly judging and smiting, along with his followers. So no wonder these nuns are growing faster than any other religious demographic, 12% of the general population, but higher percentages in the younger population. So you see the trend of the growing demographic of nuns and also the so-called duns. And Wainer cites a study done by Notre Dame and Harvard, and and this study, observing these trends, tries to make some conclusions. And They say, Robert Putnam, you may recognize his name as one of the authors, and he says, we have mixed politics and religion so completely that many simply choose to opt out of both. People are reluctant to claim a religious affiliation because they don't want the political one that comes along with it. Wainer says, we are more religiously polarized than ever. And in my secular, urban, and urbane world, God is rarely spoken of except in mocking, derisive tones. God is for suckers and Republicans. (laughs) So, I don't know why you didn't laugh at that. I thought that was funny. Just as church used to have a comfortable, unchallenged place of privilege in Our national culture and society, it now has a very marginalized place and is ministering to a shrinking demographic. And in a similar way, Jeremiah is recognizing that in this new situation that Israel finds itself in exile, that Israel's religious psychology, its way of being in the world, its identity 
is built and was constructed for a world that no longer exists. And the disappearance of that world has left Israel cranky and anxious and worried, and they think God has abandoned them. And Jeremiah, the prophet, has to imagine for them a new way of being faithful that in some ways is really an old way recovered. Because you see, what he comes up with is tied to their true religious heritage, that is, it's conservative. And yet, on the other hand, it's very innovative and creative and not beholden to the status quo, and therefore it has elements of progressivism and liberalism. But what happens when either of those two isms becomes not negotiable, not tools to be utilized to move God's kingdom forward, but something that actually dulls and blunts the directness and the import of God's kingdom. Liberalism, conservatism, libertarianism, nationalism, these can become more than just political strategies, but they can become worldviews that appeal not simply to our intellect or our altruism. We want to do something good in the world, so we adopt these strategies, but they appeal to our desires. They appeal, appeal to our hopes. They appeal to how we navigate the world and who we think we are, the identities that we live by. You see, these political ideologies contain mythologies. They tell stories about what is wrong with the world and how it can be fixed. That's a gospel story. There's bad news and there's good news combined. Now, a few years ago, I was attending a funeral for the father of a good friend of mine, and this was someone that I had mentored. He was a number of years earlier, younger than I was. And I went to his funeral sort of as a Christian minister, though I wasn't a pastor at that time. And his dad was a Christian, and so there was all the Christian symbolism that you would expect at a funeral. There was the robe and the cross and the scripture and the homily and the pastor, but I was barely paying attention. I was just kind of zoning, snoozing. It didn't grip me. It didn't capture me. But his dad was also a Vietnam veteran, and so it was also a military funeral. And at some point, the military honor guard marched in from behind, and they come dressed, you know, perfectly pressed clothes, and they have the bugle playing, they have these very severe looks on their face like they're going to war, and they lined up, and while they have everyone's attention, they raise the rifles, and they fire in unison three times. I wasn't paying attention to the Christian liturgy, but now I get goosebumps, and I got, they have my attention. And they walked over to the widow, my friend's mom, and they said, on behalf of, a, of the President of the United States and the United States Army, and a grateful nation, please accept this flag as a symbol of our appreciation of your loved one's honorable and faithful service. And they gave the folded flag to the crying widow, and they draped another flag over the coffin. Well, at this point, it was more than chill bumps. It was tears. 
And the whole gathered congregation was in tears. This is amazing to see this happen and to see them honor this person. So there, was, there I was, a Christian, barely moved by all of the Christian symbolism, but the military comes in, the instruments of American empire show up, and I want to be Rambo. Just give me a gun and tell me which way to shoot. Like, I'm bought in. Just tell me which hill to take over. In that moment, you see, that symbolism attached itself to a story that I believe very deeply, a story that most of us believe and in some ways is largely true, that is about American exceptionalism, that it's embedded deep within most of the American psyche. But you see, we learn it without study. We learn it without critical reflection. It's unconscious, and therefore it's very accessible by symbolism and by guns firing. G.K. Chesterton said once that the United States became a nation with the soul of a church. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to overstate the conflict between Christianity and sort of a benign patriotism. There's a way that we can honor our national identity. There's nothing wrong with shooting fireworks on 4th of July and grilling hot dogs together and recognizing this shared heritage that we have as Americans if you are part of, if, if you are American. But what we need to realize is that patriotism, if we agree that that term is somewhat benign, patriotism can easily bleed into a corruptive nationalism. And what happens when we overbelieve that story, we over-identify with our American identity, when the Christian gospel and American exceptionalism, American nationalism get bound together uncritically. When we, if we're a believer and follower of Jesus, and yet we spend far more time and energy and money invested in the ascendancy of our political party or our political regime, when our politics become an ism that can supplant uh, Christianity because of the fact that it's so easily conflated with it. Insofar, you see, as we, as we canonize our political identity, our particular party, our ideology, it becomes sort of holy for us. It has holy places and holy people and holy pilgrimages even. They can become, the political symbolism can become sacraments of what is essentially an alternative religion, especially when one of those parties promises that they'll be the one that will protect you. They're going to protect Christianity they're going to give it its, its rightful place of power in the world. Edward Gibbon, who wrote the magisterial history, I found it in a bookstore yesterday. It's tremendously thick of the Roman Empire. And he says, the various modes of worship, this is in your bulletin if you want to look, the various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false. And by the magistrate, 
as equally useful. Babylon, you see, had use for a compliant and complacent Israel. They would assimilate Israel most fully to the degree that they were dependent upon Babylon's protection and saw their future as existing between, in the way that Babylon and they could coexist. And this was a genius assimilation strategy because the Assyrians before them, well, they just came in and slaughtered everyone they could. But that made people mad. And so there was always this remnant that wanted to rise up and throw off its oppressors. But the Babylonians, you see, were the oppressors and the protectors at the very same time. What they were telling Israel is, come in, use your gifts, and we will legitimize your religion. We'll give you permission. We'll protect you. Now, fast forward five or six hundred years later, and Jesus comes on the scene. And it's a different occupation, different political entity, but a lot of the same things are going on. And it seems like Rome has sort of learned from Babylon because Israel now finds itself back in the promised land, but they're under the thumb of the Roman imperial occupation and power. And you have a variety of these sort of religious, political entities that are Jewish in nature, that are waiting on the Messiah, and that are trying to describe different ways of being faithful to Yahweh and yet live underneath the authority of Rome. There's a number, one, number of them, as I said, but a couple give us some threads to think about, okay? The Pharisees, you're probably familiar with that one, the Essenes, and the Zealots. How do we live faithfully when our reality is occupation, but our religion is, in a sense, state-sanctioned? How do we carve out our identity? And what Jesus comes, when he comes, what he says is very surprising, because he tells all of these groups that you're right and you're wrong. You have part of the truth, but in mistaking it for the whole, you've missed it. Now, don't worry about memorizing these names and who goes with which political philosophy. There's not going to be a test afterwards. I just want you to get the concepts. But these three represent different threads. The Pharisees, you see, they were the ones that thought, well, we can cooperate with Rome and our faith can be undiluted. It doesn't have to be compromised or tainted. The Essenes thought, well, though, that's possible. That's idealistic. What we need to do is we need to withdraw from Roman society and carve out our own little tribes and communes, and it's there that we can protect our faith and we can protect God from state intrusion. Now, the Zealots, the Zealots said, both of you are wrong. We're going to overthrow Roman authority. They're on our land, and they don't, they don't belong here. We do. And so you have these three groups that are competing, and when Jesus comes, he doesn't fit into any of them perfectly. Each had a part of the truth that could align with Jesus, but then there was another part that sort of undermined his whole 
way of being in the world. The Pharisees, you see, like Jesus, had a high respect for scriptural authority. They had a passion for moral righteousness, and you can see this in Jesus. But they used it to distance themselves from the people that they didn't like and the people that weren't like them. And unlike Jesus, they used their religious morality and their high view of the law to not carry out the mission that Yahweh wanted them to, and that is to go to these people who were unlike them. And so when Jesus comes and He goes to the poor and He goes to the oppressed and He goes to the widow and the alien, they reject Him and, in fact, want to kill Him. Now, the Essenes could have gotten on board with Jesus' idea of high-fidelity religious community, but not His call into the world, that the community is not to exist over in the background, but it is to exist in faithfulness in the midst of the world as salt and light. That was something they didn't get. How can we be safe? How can we be protected? How can we remain faithful if we're intermingled? And then the zealots, you see, they would have applauded the fact that Jesus says that the kingdom of God is ascendant, that it's a worldwide kingdom and not just merely a spiritual reality that we can privatize. But they weren't down, you see, with Jesus saying that the kingdom of God moves by word and by deeds of service and not by power and not by the sword. See, each of these instincts had a part of the truth, and you can see each of these instincts in our American experience as well, that our isms often have part of the truth, but become undermined by presuming that they have all, all of it. Like Jesus, Jeremiah says, not this way and not that way. There's not just right and left. There's not just conservative and liberal. And there's not just the centrist path that splits the difference. But there's a new way. There's a third way. And Jeremiah, as we've talked about, brings this mentality to Israel in this very dangerous setting. And he tells them not to assimilate. Don't lose your identity. This was the Pharisees, right? But remain highly distinctive. Pursue your calling as faithful followers of Yahweh in the midst of Babylon. Also, don't tribalize. This was the Essene solution. Don't withdraw, but move into the city. Pray for it. Seek its prosperity in its markets and in the way that it does business. And then also a third one, which we haven't discussed yet, that is the idea of the zealots, is also don't seek dominion by force, but instead seek the peace and the shalom of the Babylonians, of the enemy empire. You see, Jeremiah is giving something that's not a middle way, but a third way, a new way, because it's a bigger vision. It's a bigger future, future that includes but transcends some of these instincts. And it's not about party ideology. It's not about maintaining the isms. 
And it doesn't presume that we responding to that are the ones that have the truth, that the truth is God's truth. And we and our thinking, our isms, only can reflect a part of that. And so we need to have great humility. It's a bigger future. Jeremiah tells them, you see, you have your plans, you have your ideas, but I, God, Yahweh, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope, to give you a future. That is, this is something I am giving to you. It's not something you have to create on your own. This is a teleology, a direction, eschatology. That is how all of this is going to unfold. And maybe it's a soteriology. I'm just throwing theological terms out at you right now because I have to legitimate the expenses that I paid at seminary. You don't have to remember those either. Soteriology is the theory of salvation. And isms, ideologies, parties tell soteriologies. They tell stories about salvation, where the world is going. Every ism answers that. But always partially and sometimes falsely. Now let's bring this home and then I'll try and wrap it up because at home, that is here in our American political climate, there's basically two ascendant political philosophies. There's conservatism and there's liberalism. Now, you could argue libertarianism would be a third, but it basically is kind of an amalgam in some ways of both. Now, if you think about it, conservatism has aspects that sound very biblical and indeed are because they're oriented towards guarding the truth, guarding transition, I mean tradition in a changing age, keeping their religious identity despite the changes in the culture. But often, it gets confusing what culture they're trying to actually conserve, because the culture that they are attempting to conserve often just sounds like white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant cultural hegemony. There's a bunch of big words there. seems like they're trying to, to maintain or reassign, re-empower this white standing, the culture that gave whites and the church social privilege. And that world left a lot of people that God cares about behind. Now, liberalism also has aspects that sound very biblical and do connect. It sounds like the voice of prophets, the voice of social justice, but let's be honest, liberalism often comes front-loaded with a little bit of a Messiah complex that everyone in the world should want to be and will one day be like us. And they come up with grand ideas to solve very local problems that don't always materialize and often backfire. Now, parties, Republicans, you see, generally lining up with conservative thought, tend to be libertarian on economic matters. Democrats are libertarian when it comes to social matters. One, you see, wants the government out of their wallet, out of their bank account, and the other wants the government out of their bedroom. Both parties, you see, at their foundation, prioritize a sort of libertarian freedom. 
Both parties presume the autonomy of the individual, just about different things. So they're very different at the issue of pol- at the level of issues and policy, but not really foundationally different. They're both protecting somewhat of the same thing. They both talk about issues and policies that if fully achieved would only bring in really incremental change. And yet each function within the assumptions of consumer capitalism, idolatry of technology and progress, and identity politics. Am I losing you here? I hope not. This is important. Or I think it is. So hopefully you think so too. You see, working off the same foundation, liberals focusing more on race and sexuality, conservatives focusing more on money and sometimes guns lately. Well, what happens in that environment? David Webb sent me a great article this week from David Brooks, and he quotes the writer Jonathan Haidt, and he says, a funny thing happens when you take human beings whose minds evolve for tribal warfare and us and them thinking, and you fill those minds full of binary dimensions. You tell them that one side in each binary is good and the other is bad. You turn on their ancient tribal circuits and prepare them for battle. Many students find this thrilling. It floods them with a sense of meaning and purpose. You see, politics doesn't seem anymore like a discussion of different means to achieve the same good end, but it seems like trench warfare, where the goal is to obliterate the other person. Gone is that team of rivals idea that Doris Kearns Goodwin talks about with Abraham Lincoln, that they, he brings all his rivals into the cabinet. This idea of Ronald Reagan sort of hanging out with whiskey, with Tip O'Neill, talking politics. It seems quaint, doesn't it? It seems impossible. Trust in each other's good faith is all but dead. And when the church, when you as a Christian, when I as a Christian, over-identify the cause of Jesus with either party, or too fully with either ism, We tie ourselves to issues that a large part of the populace disagrees with in a very visceral way. And it undermines the church's prophetic voice. And it closes the door to people that might otherwise come in and meet Jesus. Do you see how this happens? Conservatism and liberalism and all the isms in between and beyond Both, all, can supplant God's authority and undermine the mission of the church. They can be the story that we live by, not the story of the gospel. And we can choose our church through that lens and presume that everyone in the pew with us is going to think like us and see it so clearly that if we're a Christian, we will think this way. This sort of community is not built on mission. It's not really built on the gospel. It's built on what psychologists call common enemy intimacy. 
And it gives us a good feeling. It gives us a high, but it doesn't do much for the kingdom. And it's in these theological, political bunkers actually where loneliness thrives, where disenchantment thrives, where we feel isolated in the one place we should feel most free and most liberated. Because when the church all looks like us, we assume that that homogeneity is what the church exists to uphold, and then we fear being the person that doesn't fit. We fear being the left-out ones, and that creates a system of anxiety, and anxious systems don't change the world. Politics, friends, can be a tool, and sometimes a good tool, but they can also energize our narcissism and our pride and our division and our tribal circuits, and they can play to our fear of the others. Now, let me conclude really briefly, I hope briefly, because beyond just kind of assigning some danger to maybe the way that we work, how then do we move into the world? I've been reading um, Brothers Karamazov for the third time now, and this time I'm going to finish it. (laughs) But the most famous chapter in Brothers Karamazov is uh, The Grand Inquisitor. And in this chapter, Jesus comes to Spain during the Inquisition, and he just shows up, and he's talking to the Grand Inquisitor, the person that's putting heretics to the stake. And he's the chief religious authority, that is the Grand Inquisitor. And he just lays into Jesus, and he gives him the what for. And he says, you're the problem that we're trying to address, Jesus, with all of this killing You've given them this hope that is completely unrealistic. And he just lays into Jesus over and over. And frankly, it's, it's one of the best sort of uh, problem of evil arguments out there. But Jesus, he doesn't answer the charges. He permits himself to be slapped. He permits himself to be beaten and executed, rather than turning stones to bread. Rather than display his immortality and say, no, it's you that's wrong. Get out of my way. Anything else that smacks of right-handed, straight-line power, Jesus refuses, and he gives the Grand Inquisitor his day in court. Instead, through what Luther calls left-handed power, Jesus plants seeds. He tells stories. He embodies an idea that then gets nurtured in the church by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't grow through the sword and through power. It doesn't grow through politics, but it grows through the church being the church It grows through you and I being followers of Jesus in the worlds that we've been called into and the vocations. And it becomes, because it's not straight-line, right-handed power, it becomes immune to what Henry Kissinger once said, that power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Jesus' disciples, you see, even those who had been with them, they wanted that high. They wanted the power. 
They wanted their candidate to win. But Jesus doesn't draw the powerful, nor does he promise power and safety. In fact, he forecasts just the opposite. He forecasts danger for his disciples. And this seems not only illogical, but it seems ludicrous. What kind of political strategy is it that intentionally loses elections? The kind that changes the world. The kind that saves the world through dying. The kind that gives up one's life for their neighbors so that their neighbors can thrive. Their neighbors that they like and the neighbors they don't like. Their enemies as well. Like the disciples, we would have expected and we want in our own lives for God to show up as a military general with might and power, as a political hero. Pull out your sword and stab the Grand Inquisitor. Inquisitor. Let's see what he says then, Jesus. But God shows up as a baby. And he went to a cross and was crucified between two criminals as an enemy of the state. How does that align with your story? How does that align with your political-ism? Jesus refuses the office that even his followers want to foist on him. He's not this charismatic, convincing political leader. He refuses to be an incomparable Davidic warrior, which would have certainly solved Israel's problem with Babylon. He will not rule by winning but will win by losing. Are you weak enough to pursue the politics of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, help us to learn to pursue weakness, to pursue the good of people, even those that could hurt us, to give up our power, to give up our privilege, to give up on winning through outmaneuvering other people. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the church that is called to die, even if not physically. And it sounds crazy to pray that in a country where we have relative safety. And we pray for our brothers and sisters for whom this call is a real decision that they have to make every day. Do I live or do I die? Father, help us to take courage from those that make that decision and choose to give up their lives. And even if we're not called to do that in actuality, let us live a life that often feels like that. Let our church often be a place that calls us to do that. And we pray as we confess our faith, we pray as we come to the table and we see that you died for us, that we would be empowered. In Jesus' name, amen.